Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our Pangea Talks Lead with Purpose series, where we grow by learning insightful perspectives from global leaders making a positive impact around the world. Joining us today is Nianta Spellman, CEO of Rainforest Partnership. Rainforest Partnership has dedicated teams and partners in Texas, Peru, Mexico, Ecuador, Colombia, and other regions around the world with a common goal of protecting tropical rainforests. For, founded in 2007, Rainforest Partnership has helped nearly 50 rainforest communities protect over 850,000 acres of tropical rainforest in Ecuador and Peru. Rainforest Partnership uses an integrated approach that leverages partnerships with all levels of government, NGOs, communities, and businesses to help achieve its vision. Nianta, welcome to Lead with Purpose. Thank you so much, Declan. It's so lovely to be here with you uh, and to sharing the space with you. Indeed, you know, you and I connected back in 2019 before this crazy pandemic shut everything down around the world. You and I connected at the UN. Uh, it's where we met uh, and uh, it was at a specific family office event from across North America where families were brought together and uh, family offices were invited to the UN to see how we can uh, marry private capital with public social good to tackle the 17 SDGs. And that's where you and I met. And um, we have... Uh, I would say that this conversation is long overdue, is what it's been in my opinion. You know, um, I wanted to open our conversation there to understand how, how the pandemic has um, created new perspectives for you in, in achieving the work that you'd like to do with Rainforest Partnerships. So, you know, so much happened in 2019. It felt like the world was ready to tackle climate change finally. The Times for Forests was there. People, you know, the, 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 the fires in the Amazon in Brazil had gone mainstream, the news about it. And so people were paying attention finally, it felt like. And a lot of people were coming up with, you know, their own solutions for how to tackle this. I was talking to all sorts of people, planning, like I was just on the road and then there it was, the pandemic. And suddenly <laughs> none of us were going anywhere. And, and it was really stressful time, right? Um, I mean, there's no other way to talk about it than to say it was challenging. It was not easy. And a lot of people shut down and those were not options for us. And you know, for those of us who work um, protecting tropical rainforests, we had to create new ways of responding and adapting. And if you have the right DNA and the culture in your organization, you do. And we did, I will tell you, all the way until about May, there were too many nights that I did not sleep. I've not owned up to that before, <laughs> I don't know. But we didn't. And we were working seven days a week. I, mm. I cannot fathom what that was like. I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about my teams on the ground as well. We were more busy by not being able to travel because as we were adapting, what also happened was we could now talk to the world. We did not have to find mm. 
we didn't have to be invited to go to places. Before it was just me or a couple of other people. Suddenly, we were being invited in a lot of spaces. And so a lot of my team members were being, in, uh, being able to participate. But the other thing for my team on the ground, you couldn't travel. We didn't have budgets for certain things. And we're like, oh, we don't need travel budgets. We don't need time for travel. We don't need to figure out how to do these events or gatherings. What can we do? And so we did. And so we did things that nobody had ever done before. Gathering people at, at the you know, uh, federal uh, level, this is in Peru, for instance, at the regional level, at the local municipal levels, and then even um, uh, community leaders and presidents, including indigenous community members and their presidents. We brought them together in these webinars. We have 2,000 people watching. That's unheard of and had never been done before. And then our team was, of course, part of it. Not only were they coordinating, and then they were training, and they were doing all sorts of, there were all sorts of opportunities. And it was literally until about, I think, September, October, where we finally felt, so a whole year and almost three quarters later, that we felt like we could finally catch our breath just a bit. Uh, and, um, and then um, got to the COP, uh, the, the UN Climate Conference, in Glasgow, right, in Glasgow. Yeah. Uh, pop 26 mm -hmm. in Glasgow, which had been postponed by year. Um, um, Rainforest Partnership has observer delegate status. So I've been going since Copenhagen. And we went there and the world had finally caught up to where we'd been for 14 years, which was forests are important. But if we don't keep standing for a standing, I almost want to say it's game over for us uh, as the stable climate we've we've come to uh, expect and and are used to uh, that supports humanity and everything else that coexists with us. But it was really interesting because the world leaders came together with the Glasgow Declaration on Land Use, saying we want to end deforestation by 2030. Never in a million years would I have expected that. And I think I was telling you this, our goal, we've been talking about net zero deforestation by 2030. And why do we say net zero? Because if we said zero deforestation, people would be like, what planet do you live on? And four months ago, if I said this to you, even if you were polite because you like me, you'd be saying, what the hell is she talking about? How do you do that? And then you had these 133 heads of state and countries basically saying, we're going to end deforestation by 2030. Now, it's not a binding agreement, nor is it uh, uh, something that anybody really knows how we're going to get to. But guess what I heard from a bunch of funds and a bunch of people right after? Mm. They got the signal they needed. It was no longer this crazy idea that you know some of us who are in the know knew that forests, protecting standing forests had to be part of how we respond to the current climate and biodiversity loss crisis. Because without that, we cannot get to, forget about 1.5, we cannot get to two degrees centigrade. We cannot meet any of our goals because we don't have technology. 
we don't have um, we don't have anything at scale to meet the challenge of reducing carbon emissions fast enough and at scale to to really meet the um, uh, what the UN says, you know, the about seven or eight year time frame uh, by which we need to deal with both biodiversity loss and climate change, uh, or else we get past some tipping points that we don't know, you know, how we get around that. And then we're in a completely different place, uncharted territory as, as humanity. And so, um, you know, coming out of the pandemic, and I, I often say now that we're out of the pandemic, it's not that we're out of the pandemic, but it's out of the pandemic mind frame mm, wow. that we can mm. live in the pandemic, but we can function and we can, we, we can be future forward and we can think ahead and start having, creating the visions or the vision, I guess, for what, what we need to do if we're going to, have a planet that's going to um, really, really support us as humanity. I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's what it is about. No matter how much money we have, how smart we are, what access we have to anything, none of that is gonna matter because you cannot escape to New Zealand. You cannot escape to Mars. You cannot escape underwater. You cannot be in a yacht a super mega yacht and think that, you know, you're going to be in an apartment in there and, and go from place to places, you know, crazy weather events move. Is that the life we can expect to live? No, but there, there are such possibilities before us as human beings, as, as smart as we are, as, as beautifully we've evolved, uh, with all the innovation we've created around us, right? And, and the imagination and the wonder and the abilities we have. You know, I'm inspired to hear you share this. And one of the things that uh, came to my mind uh, as you were describing our call to action is this. If we don't help keep our forest standing, we fall. And that was a powerful takeaway in the way you've uh, described that and how I wanted to just capture that uh, sentiment. You also talked about this frozen psychology, this pandemic psychology that had us just like a deer in head, like, what do we do? My gosh. And it, while everyone was trying to sort out their daily life, uh, projects like yours uh, may not have been uh, top of the list. But the good news is, coming out of Glasgow uh, last uh, November, 2021, November, uh, you would have had conversations there at the conference of the parties, uh, COP uh, COP26. And I'm glad to hear and encouraged that world leaders have um, uh, re-engaged is probably the right word, the conversation, at least it's top of mind, at least to, to discuss in this forum, the COP forum. But I always ask the question, I'm, I'm an evidence-based guy. You know, I learned this principle a long time ago uh, and I, I hold it close to, uh, it's a bit of wisdom that I hold close to my chest and I use it daily. It says deeds, not words. Don't tell me, show me. Sure. You know, because 
you know, if, if, it, if it's always about telling me, it's just really a, a, sales, a sales pitch that has no conclusion. And so as a, as a, a leader with purpose, and you've been doing this, you know, about a decade and a half, almost. Um, where do you get the deep reserves of patience to work with governments <laughs> to support what it is you're doing? Because I want to have a real conversation with you here. And we're grateful. We're eternally grateful for all the support we're receiving from governments and NGOs and businesses. But I know when working with leaders who've got a vision, they'd like to see results sooner than what usually happens. So how do you, how do you tackle that in your life? <laughs> <laughs> Once in a while, it's challenging. But, you know, I, I think you, you, it's interesting because you accept um, folks for who they are and institutions for what they are and systems for what they are. But then you say, okay, this is where they're at. You know, what is it that I can do? What is the position I have? Who can I bring along? And you know, what is that? You know, where can I come in and in what way influence something? And so it's, we're actually in that process in so many ways, um, and I am, and I, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Um, I'll, I'll, um, I'm wondering if I should even give you that anecdote, but the other thing is there's a lot that happens that governments do, that corporations do, that remains hidden. And so then finding out about what is hidden that is occurring and how do you try and influence that as well? So one other thing that is important is that when there is a declaration like the one, not everybody's, I mean, two days later, Brazil and Indonesia were already sort of, you know, scaling back from their commitment, right? right? It doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's good it, PR. It's, it's out there. Now, you know, you can't go and say, sorry, we're changing our mind. It's out there because the rest of the world said, okay. But what happens with a lot of these countries, and I've seen this at city levels, state levels, and country levels, that junior bureaucrat may care not about the state of the forest, may not care about climate. But what they do care about, what they do know is my job is to go do this. Here's what we signed on to. Here's what we uh, agreed to do. And I have seen incredible examples of people creating all sorts of policies. And that's why sometimes when somebody says, oh, we're gonna get to something by 2050 or 2070. And I was like, really? Because that just, you know. But if somebody says, <laughs> here's our pledge by 2025 right. or 2030, people start you know, your sure. corporate leader friends, Sure. you know, somebody's watching. What did their CEO say? You, you and now they're out there, so people are watching now. Yeah. And then people are going to start planning for how they're going to meet that because something <laughs> got said publicly. Sure. And so, you know, um, and so for my part, what I'm trying to do is who do I empower mm. and enable so they will hold all these people who are making these pledges 
just make sure somebody holds them accountable. Mm. No longer the time when you just say something and you'll get a pass. Mm. And, and we have the abilities and the systems and the structures. So that's what I'm doing with some friends of mine who had other organizations in the rainforest conservation space. And we are gathering and, and you know, on my own, people can ignore me very easily. Mm. If there's two or three of us, I don't know what the critical mass is of enough of us coming together from around the world within our rainforest conservation space, whether it's journalism or direct work in one country or another in a different continent or at a policy level, when we come together. And, and so understanding how these systems work accepting what governments do they come you know presidents come and go depending on what country um you know governments fall um and so how do you future proof some of your work as well so um it's it's not only understanding and looking at all the systems but also figuring out what's the system you're going to create to respond to that and I by myself cannot do it. I by myself with Rainforest Partnership, we cannot do it, but who are we gonna bring along with us? And there's enough of us that, we're very collaborative by the way. So this, there's, I got tired of so many people saying, why don't you all just get along? I was like, what are you talking about? In our rainforest conservation space, we actually get along, it's fallacy. I mean, it's just, and, and then of course, there's the other side of it. We do entirely different work. And my retort to some of them is like, do you tell IBM? And then do you tell Apple and Dell? And it's like, why don't you all just get along or merge? It's like, sure. so, but we actually get along, many of us. And because how do we lead with purpose? We have a higher calling. Mm. Self-imposed, I think. Um, and this is where I'll tell you my example. I uh, went to this thing three times in that year. I was asked to put myself in 2030. It's 2030 now. And so I was in this group. We had been convened that there were about 15 of us that had to meet every day. And we had to come up with it's 2030 now. And so I wrote my stuff. And... I was about, you know, I was like the second last person. And then everybody starts talking. And these are supposed to be sort of global leaders, some of them. And they're talking about, I want my children to be this, and I want something. <laughs> and they did and not I understand want a house. About a house. <laughs> and so I thought, oh my God, I need to change what I've written, right? Because me, it's like what what the state of forest or what the state of our planet is. Global and, leaders talking about their kids and their uh, and their homes. And, and so I'm thinking, it's like I love my children, but sure. I could not change it. I I could not bring myself. You know, sure. I know how much you love your son. I mean, my sure. children are very important, but I never talk about them because it's it's like my focus is a planet. The way I come about it Amazing. is forests. Wow. And, and I think that's the, the sort of people that are coming together with me are those folks 
that it's not just our organizations, it's not just our own lives. It's like, how do we leverage, you know, the strengths of our respective organizations, our individual strengths. And I think it's going to take a bunch of us like that in every sector. So who are we mm-hmm. in our nonprofit sector? Uh, who are you all in your sector? Mm-hmm. Who are the heads of state? Somebody's got to, you know, we're the corporate leaders. We're at a time that people need to start stepping forward and saying, hey, who's going to come with me? And, you know, you know, this idea when you build something, they will come. You know, that's true. If it's a right thing in the right way. And so, um, yeah, it's a longer answer for you, but no, I, I love, it. I really appreciate it. I mean, and so when you um, yeah. when you share, I, 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 you paint with words, at least in my mind, your words create pictures in my mind, and as you're describing the different, uh, you know, roles that different team members play and how we collaborate and work together, and where we end up uh, is really thriving together. I saw this mental picture of us all being part of the same tree. Some of us are part of the trunk, some of us are the roots, some of us are the branches and the leaves, some of us are the fruit uh, on, the, on, the, on the tree. So I saw us all together um, and I saw this beautiful image. I wanted to, to take a moment just to talk a little bit about how one of the advocate um, you know, organizations that you're uh, connected to, uh, where you actually gave um, a talk uh, in September 2015, the United Nations agreed on a global collaborative partnership to transform our world. And this was through the 2030 agenda. You mentioned 2030 a number of times, and this is for sustainable development. So world leaders committed to putting in all the necessary efforts to achieve 17 sustainable development goals, the SDGs, and 169 targets. Um, Now this ambitious diplomatic effort aimed to reach significant improvements in topics ranging from human rights, environmental sustainability, where you and I are talking about now, and even climate change, which is some of the work that your your work impacts climate change as well, and prosperity and peace. I wanted to ask, uh, as we think about this specific um, SDG, I think, and you you can give me some focus, I think it's SDG 15, is that the one that uh, most of your work is is focused on? Life on land? Actually, no, we we have... 10 SDGs, uh, uh, our work actually- Oh, that, that impacts, oh my God, can we talk about that? So your work actually impacts 10 of the SDGs. Yeah, because uh, oh, wow. gender equality is one of them, life on land, of course, uh, global partnerships. Um, um, what's interesting is that people often think about water, but what people don't realize is mm-hmm. water doesn't because the SDGs are very specific mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. how they, you know, the words, don't necessarily, um, what may be a logical implication is not the same, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so our work is uh, it's sustainable communities. Um, uh, wow. So we actually, um, our work when we work on sustainable livelihoods, um, that means that the communities are actually earning uh, a better than a basic income. And so we actually, um, uh, meet several of the SDGs. And what we do with each of our projects, we actually take the project and say, which SDG 
um, actually uh, uh, relates to that particular project. And I'll tell you something else. In my experience, um, most people do not. So all you have to do is spend about 45 minutes, mm. I think, mm -hmm. to go and actually dig down mm -hmm. at the SDGs and all the indicators for how the UN does this. But folks haven't done that level of study. And if they did that, they'll understand the framework that the, the UN created. And by the way, a friend of mine from Hungary actually moved to New York for 10 months working on the SDGs because three countries actually did a lot of that work. And um, if we did that and we had better level of understanding, we would respond better. And so one of the things that um, um, I want to focus on is how do we increase the baseline knowledge amongst those of us who want to go do something? And so um, in our case, I want us to um, uh, increase the baseline knowledge about rainforests. Like why are they important? If people understood a couple of very basic things, that these forests make their own rain, right? Forests, forests trees make their, their own, own rain. rain. I don't think most They're, people know that, to be quite No, honest. they don't. People don't know that trees set out, you know, you know I mean, trees send chemical markers and, and sure. electrical signals. And then the roots, you know, the, the networks, um, the, the fungal networks and how that communication happens. We know a lot about trees, but we really don't know much about trees. And, and this is still sort of not um, part of the mainstream uh, understanding. So if you think about your gut biome, we know about that. But think about 20 years ago, I think there was a cover, maybe a Newsweek cover, which talked about the, what do you call it, super something or the other, you know, like only 10% of the DNA is our own individual DNA. The rest of the nine tenths we carry is everything else we carry. Mm -hmm. um, uh, all the guests that we carry, most of them beneficial, mm -hmm. right? How does that change our worldview when we know just that little fact? And so how does it change our worldview if we understood that the Amazon, you need a particular mass of Amazon to, to survive and thrive because it makes its own rain five or six times over. And if you take out enough of it where it doesn't make enough of that rain and you have this mass that creates, regulates your water cycle and therefore your climate cycles, what point do you take out enough that it can't do that and how does that then have an effect on you, where you're sitting, me, where I'm sitting in Texas or somebody in California, because that atmospheric river, sky river, mm -hmm. that carries more moisture in the atmosphere than in the Amazon basin is disrupted. Mm. How does that, if we took like five, 10 minutes, I'm not even saying go study a lot, that, you know, one, bit of information, why do we think differently? If I'm a CEO of a company that's, you know, um, that is uh, sourcing from a country where a lot of deforestation is happening and uh, uh, I've made a commitment and I've gone and made a pledge. I went to the UN and I made a pledge that I'm going to do this. But then at the same instant, I come back and I look very short term and say, hey, I got to do this and I make this decision. 
but I didn't have the benefit of the information for how the forest structure works. Mm. Um, might I make a different decision? Might I ask a couple more questions slightly differently? Might I be able to still source from the same place, but ensuring that there isn't deforestation in my supply chain, right? I, and I, um, I think we're at a place where we need to do that with anybody that's in any position of power, whether it is, whether it is a CEO of a multinational or a local corporation or a chef or an influencer mm -hmm. or, you know, um, uh, um, somebody at a major fund, somebody at a small fund. And mm -hmm. when do we get enough of us to have this baseline of knowledge that will help us make slightly different decisions, but huge in terms of the impact they will have on the trajectory we're on currently, right? Um, and so, yes, I think about these things and, um, you know, can't force knowledge on people, uh, but how do we go about um, responding and, and that's one way, right? Um, you know, when I hear you talking about the people that we need to reach and who needs to be aware of what we're doing, I wonder how many of those people really are, um, are the world leaders that we need to have study the framework? Because it's my estimation based on one of the, the suggestions that you shared that story that um, perhaps, um, perhaps, the you know the UN SDG framework may not be uh, top of mind for most world leaders. I mean, it isn't. I my oh my, my personal my <laughs> yeah, sure. um, because even if it is, and do we do lip service? So even when corporate leaders are sure. saying that, they're integrating. But in my experience, most of them, if you cannot say what does life on land mean, it's like it has meaning go read, you know, spend five minutes reading about it. It's not what you think it is. Actually, life on land is easier, but, you know, a couple of others are not. Mm -hmm. And so if you think you are doing certain things, if we tested people, um, uh, we, would, we would understand that, that with the lack of baseline knowledge in key places, how can we make pledges? How can we meet the goals that we really truly want to if we, if we don't even take the time to understand some of this, right? It's all interconnected, right? We live in a very interconnected global world. I, you know, the students I'm teaching, the example I gave was about a phone. Yeah, it's probably rare metals, maybe came out of Central Africa, right? Um, the plastic, I won't talk about. Technology, maybe out of California, maybe out of uh, some other place, probably made in China. You know, and if, if it came on one of those big tankers, could have had a Panamanian flag, you know, owned by a Japanese company, uh, chartered by a Taiwanese company, if you talk about um, the Ever Given, mm -hmm. and with an Indian crew, I think it was an Indian crew. Mm -hmm. But who's involved? And then when it gets at the dock, who's handling that? And then it gets to the stores and then it gets to me. 
And then if I use WhatsApp, I'm reaching people all over the world across six continents, populated continents. So I'm super connected through this one little device. But what is my role and responsibility for how this has had an effect on everything, all sorts of lives, all sorts of energy that's being used at whose expense, at what expense for ecosystems? And, you know, I talk about it often because often it's, it's the forest, but it's not just the forest, right? It's, it's everything else as well. So, um, yeah, what is, how do we acknowledge, understand, accept, and then allow ourselves to be just a little bit more curious and, and then look at the next step, like how do we solve these for real, not lip service, not making pledges. And so, you know, a lot of pledges were made in Glasgow, bilateral, multilateral, you know, I mean, amazing pledges. Sure, sure. What did you call it? You call it a rainfall of, you know, promises and pledges that end up hitting the asphalt. By the way, I've quoted you a couple of times. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I'm glad it doesn't get too to the roots where we need it. <laughs> no, because when, when we make those pledges, we often imagine that we've already done what we, what we pledged. As if to say, by our, merely by stating something, it's going to happen. By merely saying, we have these sustainable development goals <laughs> and we'll have a society, sure. you know, um, that's akin we, to saying this is a really fun one I think you're gonna love it's akin to saying when we're getting married when, you know when I say I do that's it that's my full responsibility this is what these leaders are saying we're gonna we're, we're gonna pledge okay it's lovely ceremony no, we're married around, right yeah. you know there's a big round of applause wonderful everyone feels good but the real marriage begins when you go home into your lives and you actually start working together and you have this wonderful journey that uh, no one, no one in the public eye really sees. <laughs> and and you know what does it mean for two people to be together and to create a life together, to actually get to know each other, to grow together, to evolve, right? And that's what the pledges are, though. So the pledges are just the I do's, in my humble opinion. <laughs> it is. And so then, so when you take somebody like me, uh, this is why I want to empower my uh, Gen Z for the trees, my mm -hmm. young ones. Um, uh, uh, Rosie Khan, who leads uh, Gen Z for the Trees, the initiative we created, Rainforest Partnership. And by the way, I uh, took two of our Zs um, uh, to the COP as our delegates. Wow. And because there are quite a bit of demand, everybody wants to talk to them, but their job is going to be to hold people accountable. Um, they're gonna be 40% of the workforce very soon by 2026. And so, you know what? Um, let them be ready and uh, let them go do this. And they, they have the power that they don't quite know yet. Mm. But the minute they start embracing the power they have, because right now it probably feels for a lot of Zs that there's this imbalance, right? All the people in charge are much older. They're imposing all sorts of, you know, uh, all sorts of rules and laws and, ways of living and destroying 
But what happens when they start leveraging what they can in their numbers? Um, and so, I, you know, that's another response. Um, by the way, my Gen Z for the Trees initiative came, um, we launched it on World Rainforest Day, uh, not last year, the year before. So a year and a half ago. Uh, and so during the pandemic. And uh, um, so they're doing work that's globally relevant. Uh, and a couple, you know, it was very funny, a couple executives at Glasgow were saying, hold us accountable. And initially it was like, why are they asking us? But they need the help. And so I think the idea when you talked um, earlier about, you know, leading with purpose, it's really, you know, for me, my purpose is to, is a planet. I mean, the way I get there is forests, um, uh, but it's a planet, one that um, is able to support humanity and everything else that coexists with us. To tell and, you this, this, this picture, forgive me for just, I wanna come back to your thought, but you're painting with pictures, right? You're painting with words and I'm getting pictures. When you said your purpose was the planet, the mental image painted in my mind was you as a mom with a baby, but the baby, the belly is the globe in your tummy. That's the image that I got when you talk, talked about uh, the planet is your purpose. Isn't that, isn't that phenomenal? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, um, I am very connected to our planet. I'm very connected to our forests. And, you know, the thing is, every one of us who lives on this planet, we're all connected. We're just on a different, um, uh, 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 we haven't all connected to it. Mm. Uh, um, I can sit with almost anybody and help you connect to that and you would feel it. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's. It's, it's, uh, it's not religious, it's not spiritual. It just, for me, I often say that it's laws of physics. It's just laws of physics we don't yet understand. Mm -hmm. Because some of the things I've seen and experienced, and by the way, I don't do drugs. I don't do ayahuasca. I, because I don't need to, by the way. Um, and I ask and I don't need to but I haven't ever been drunk. So I'm not somebody who's just talking and then people get upset with me. Not mm. now, but when I was younger, because mm. your friends get drunk around you and they get very pissed when you're not. And I was like, sorry. Um, but there's so much we don't understand about ourselves, about our planet, about ecosystems all around us. We think we're in control. We think we know a lot and we do. But we know a fraction of the knowledge out there, right? My team, a herpetologist is always, every time he goes out there in the forest, he discovers new species. There's so many species to be discovered. Um, uh, what was it that I was reading? One teaspoon of soil has more um, microbes than in our entire galaxy, the stars in our galaxy or something crazy like that. It's, you know, 
we know so little about our planet. And if we had wonder, if we had respect for our planet, if we had respect for life around us, for each other and ourselves, and we had wonder, I think we treat it all very differently. We do, and I have to raise a few things here because I, I, I want to go there with you because it's um, we have to tackle the tough stuff because I want to have conversations with you on a global leader level. So I want to share a few things. So rainforests, they're a powerful natural climate solution. You know that uh, better than most. Uh, not only do the rainforests regulate global temperatures, they also cool and regulate local and microclimates, and they limit the Earth's reflectivity, which in turn stabilizes ocean currents, winds, and even rainfall patterns. There has been significant bodies of uh, scientific research, like in 2017, for example, an analysis was published in uh, one of these scientific journals, um, and climate scientists concluded that natural climate solutions, including forest conservation and restoration and sustainable agriculture, could provide, here we go, more than one third of the global climate mitigation necessary to stabilize warming to below 2%. So the science is there. So I wonder, wonder uh, and we're going to talk about this. I wonder what the gap is really, uh, but I have some analogies that I want to share with you. One more thing I wanted to share back is around, and you know this, tropical forests, they become a net, they become net carbon emitters. So not uh, everywhere, uh, not, not, not everywhere. in Africa yet, right. uh, in Indonesia and Southeast Asia, yes. Right. We're um, almost at parity in, in uh, the Amazon and um, uh, they're still um, um, not so in Africa, but it's all moving in the wrong direction, yeah. No, I appreciate that. And you talked about that distressing development. A 2017 study published in... Uh, the journal Science, it's the journal is actually labeled Science, reveals that tropical forests that once served as the Earth's carbon sinks now emit more carbon than they absorb, which is what you're referring to. And that's because of deforestation and forest loss caused by humans. However, we can't afford to give up on the tropical forests because restoring them and their ability to sequester carbon is one of several critical steps we've got to take to address our global climate crisis. And these are some of the, the things that when I talk to you, uh, you know, I, I think about these conversations in the context of myself and my son, my great grandchildren, because I see out, I'm a, I think generationally in the way my mind's wired, I think to myself, what, what are we needing to do now to create the shifts that, that will make a difference? So I reflect as a strategist or a, in a 360 perspective, I look around the table the analogy that I came up with that I wanted to share with you is this. Part of the reason we may not be getting the responsiveness that we need from, let's say, the, the levels of government that we want on a consistent basis beyond the pledges, maybe, and based on this analogy, I'm going to tell you about the family. I'd like to describe to you a family, okay, who lives in a house. They live in a house and they've got, as any family does, incomes. They also have a lifestyle. They also have this beautiful front lawn with trees and a backyard, okay? Beautiful backyard with lovely, an orchard in the back. But what ends up happening with this family is that the lifestyle they chose 
is consuming so much of their resources that they can no longer afford to hire someone to take care of their landscaping. And so the garden in the front begins to deteriorate because they want their Xboxes and their Playstations and their Range Rovers and their uh, you know, four vacations a year. They want their fast food and they want uh, the biggest uh, you know, big screen TV and they want the SUVs. And so they have to pay for that lifestyle. And by paying for that lifestyle, they don't have as much left over to pay for the care of their landscape outside. I wonder if that analogy translates well on a national and even a countrywide level for nations who may not be able to support uh, the, the initiatives of, for example, what we, you and the Rainforest Partnerships and others like you that are trying to do because they have other things in their life that they've made a priority. Well, so uh, there's a study um, actually just today, yesterday, about how 50% um, of the carbon emissions are um, created by 10% of us on this planet. <laughs> and right. the, the, the right. poorest 50%, right? right. Um, they are responsible for about 15%, I think is what it said. And immediately I thought about, it's the same disparity as what's happening with the small island nations, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> It's ridiculous to expect poor little um, small islands asking them to reduce their carbon emissions because even if they went to negative whatever, it's going to be a blip because what they emit as a small island nation is a fraction of what even like the city I'm in Austin emits, right? Or downtown alone probably does. And uh, when you look at you know, if I think it was what the city of New York or was it the state of New York emits more carbon than all of sub-Saharan Africa, I think something crazy like that. Mm -hmm. You start looking at what the numbers are at any given point and who's taking and who's suffering. Um, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to look at that. So I don't think that analogy, if you shared it, is going to work because yeah. we're used to who we are and what we are and we don't want to. Yeah, it's got to be with, but we cannot say because it's so difficult that we stop there. We've yeah. got to find ways. And so one thing, when you talk about, you know, corporate leaders, it's like, okay, they wake up sometimes mm. and they're like, okay, I've got to take action. A head of state says I've got to, mm. and they're human too, right? So when the Amazon, um, Amazon burns all the time. But when it makes the news and now the rest of the world is paying attention uh, or there's a wildfire and there's loss of life. So we pay attention and we respond because we it's very human, right? To say, we're gonna respond. So if somebody responds and you get this ratcheting up and we need to start doing more of that, how do we respond? So who are, it cannot just be the corporate leaders and the, the heads of state. How do you then bring the youth in there and other voices and how do we bring it so that we're holding ourselves accountable in a far more powerful way and creating systems for doing that. Mm -hmm. And some of us have to go and say, we're the ones we've been waiting for. So when I talk, I often say, I invite anybody, you know, for, for whom it is, you know, join us 
as the ones we've been waiting for. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to self-select. So my contention is that for most of us on this planet, we don't have the luxury or the ability to go tackle any of this. We're worrying about where is my food going to come from today? Am I going to have a roof over my head? Is that leaking? Or, you know, what's this? Can my child go to school if I am fortunate enough Mm -hmm. to send my child to school? So I have no expectations from any of those folks, right? Then there's the the whole lot who couldn't care less. They're just about me. It's like I care about myself. I'm good, I have enough money, I have this, or I need my freedom, or why should I care about, okay, leave those people out. And then there's those of us who've chosen for ourselves to care, mm-hmm. and we care deeply. Mm-hmm. Who can we bring along from the folks who are sort of waiting for somebody to invite them? And mm-hmm. that mass is far bigger then we realize or recognize. Mm. And it's time to awaken ever increasing numbers of people who join us, right? And mm. in every sector. And one way to do it is informing people in the way that they would like to be informed in, in what makes sense. And, you know, how can we share some little bits of information? So I'll, that example you gave about the Amazon being, or not the Amazon, tropical rainforest being net emitters, and Amazon was part of the mm-hmm. study too. Mm-hmm. I had, I'll just say, there were a couple of idiotic people who came and I was supposed to speak in front of some, and this person comes in and is like, how do you, how can you talk about protecting forests when, you know, they're net emitters? And I was like, I, I was at that particular thing and he wanted to go speak for five minutes, take my time. And I was like, no, why don't you go do it on your own time? Because, and I don't have the time and patience to explain to you why that is not so. The reason it's a net emitter when it becomes a forest, it's because we've burned or cut or degraded enough of it that it can no longer absorb as much as it used to or needs to. Mm -hmm. Needs to not for itself, but for us as a planet. We need to keep as much of it as as possible, both holding and storing the carbon that Mm -hmm. it holds in the ground, in the soil. Uh, If it's sitting on peat, God, we need it even more because that is like, um, that is like a bomb, you know, Mm -hmm. carbon bomb about to explode. And if it is the forest itself, um, we need it to continue storing enough of it so that it may have the chance to to regenerate and restore further out and and, um, continue being carbon sink at the core, continue doing all the other services, providing all the services, whether it's Mm -hmm. rainfall, stabilizing climate, biodiversity. I mean, there's just so much, right? Tropical rainforests make up less than 3% of the surface area of our planet. Mm -hmm. Less than 3% of the surface area of our planet. And they're so disproportionately important to the balance and well-being um, uh, for our, our biosphere. And as we know it, right? Um, if we decide as humanity, like we're done, we know the planet's going to be here for another 4 billion years and let it go whichever way, then 
we stop caring. But if not, how do we start being careful when we say it's a net emitter, it's nice headline. Um, how do we hold journalists responsible? By the way, I saw, I saw a headline yesterday and I almost wrote to that journalist and I, it was probably the copy editor writing, you know, the headline. It was like, it was misleading as ever. I won't say which paper or which magazine um, and say, you have a higher responsibility to word it correctly, to, you know, to title that article uh, more responsibly because you did it in a way that will get you more eyes on it perhaps. But it was misleading and not enough people read and come to their own conclusion. Uh, and so, you know, you can't hold most people responsible. You can't hold most people responsible, but who are we that are the powerful minority? And I say powerful because we've either got the ability or we've chosen to focus our attention, right? And it's not because we're better. It's not because we are more important. It's just that our focus is beyond ourselves. And I don't know what makes me be who I am, where I, you know, giving my example. I mean, I really deeply thought about that, right? Why could I not? I couldn't, I could not go change that writing and say something about myself or my children. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I couldn't care less. I could not envision, you know, like my personal life in 2030. All I could envision was the state of the planet. I could not drill down lower because that made no sense to me. So maybe there are a few of us who do this, right? You do it because you are thinking generationally about your children and grandchildren. Um, find more of us like that, that are thinking way beyond this today, next month, two years, 10 years, 100 years, you know. And who amongst us cares about more than just human beings? Because we coexist in a way with such beauty and, and such riches and intricate relationships in the, you know, the ecosystems. I mean, there's so much if we just stop and see and we're destroying it. But we can change, right? We can we change. Have that ability. We have the ability. And I think one of the things I want to share back here, just so that we can communicate about um, uh, how we inspire. There's a, a bit of wisdom that I think you would have heard uh, in your journey. Uh, as goes the family, so goes the nation. Mm -hmm. As goes the nation, so goes the planet. You know, and I gave an analogy earlier about the family, and uh, you actually addressed it in in in, in a, a latter part of your conversation, where you talked about there are people who just don't want to hear in one of those three segments, don't want to listen because they're too busy. That family, in that scenario, were those people who just don't want to hear because they want their lifestyle the way it is. They're earning a good income, according to them. They're they're enjoying. The, the lifestyle that makes them happy and what they want. 
and then they start neglecting the outside of their home. The outside of the home is the analogy for the rainforests around us. Mm -hmm. The family was the analogy for the governments around the world. And so as we talk about the a relatability of what you're trying to do, part of the reason that I have a bit of concern in terms of how I read the way, you know, rainforest uh, information being presented, for example, you know, there are statistics about rainforests being uh, areas being deforested, but it's written in a manner that doesn't identify who's doing it. It's um, and it's, it's fascinating yeah. to me because we know who's doing it, and they should be put in those research and those journals. They should. These are the companies from North America or from the West that are doing these things. Yeah, we could name names if we wanted to. But they should be. Uh, but yeah, this is really. what I'm saying. It's you know when we say things like you know we are doing this to the planet, we aren't. You and I aren't, but there's specific folks that are. And and you are you got to the place the myth and you've started reading about this the myth of individual responsibility. So there mm -hmm. are some folks who are trying to say we as individuals are responsible, but that's not the case. Most of the decision making does not happen at the individual level. It happens at institutional level. It happens at country levels or levels of government. It happens at um, corporate levels. I mean, you know, it, it, you, we don't want to get into the Facebook conversation, but somebody made a decision what algorithms to, um, uh, uh, to weigh more importantly than others. There was a decision made a very clear decision made for a very ulterior motive uh, that did not take um, certainly any SDGs into account because uh, <laughs> <it was laughs> to say, uh, um, uh, but um, not in the truest sense, right? Uh, if you drill down, I, I actually, I don't know um, what the stance is, but um, um, the point being that it is when we talk about systemic change. So for me, mm. it's like we need to think about, so a couple of things. And I, I said this to my class, I'm, I'm teaching a class this semester, a, a graduate level class on climate and development at the LBJ School of Public Affairs here at University of Texas. And one of the things, you know, what is development anyway? What does it mean? And the point I wanted to make is it's not it, who gets to define it, whose terms, how, right? right. And, and so when you think about it, there is no bigger human right. So I don't think of myself as, as somebody who's a human right focused person, mm. but here's the thing. There's no bigger human right than the right to have a stable climate that will support humanity to coexist with everything else within uh, a biosphere that will allow us to live more or less as we've become accustomed to, because we don't want to go back to, you know, the, the, the dark ages or way beyond that, actually, we'd have to. And so if you think about the most fundamental human right, and we say that is a stable climate, 
because I can say healthcare is a human right. I can say education is a human right. I can say, you know, um, freedom of speech is or ability to just survive. But if you talk about that's for one or two or three people or this family or this city or this country, still does not get to the answer if the rest of humanity cannot. And maybe it's not in 100 years, maybe it's not 200 years. Are we okay with humanity not being able to exist as, you know, how many generations in the future are you willing to think about? Or can you, right? Um, my older son says he doesn't want children. At one point, it used to upset me. It doesn't now, right? Because, and I'm an optimist, by the way, because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Because if I was not an optimist, I'd stop. I'd quit working this bloody hard. Sorry, I shouldn't be saying that. Uh, and I would go and, you know, go hide um, or just go to the forest and hang out in the forest. That's right, just hang out in the forest. <laughs> just like, you right? know. Just go hang um, out. You know, there's something here that I want to address because you've heard this term in business, follow the money. The only reason that inaction has uh, been the consistent response uh, from decision makers that we need support from for the reinforced partnership work that you're doing and others like you is that there's no um, appropriate reward system in place yet. People do do perform when they're rewarded. And, so, and generally in the West, that reward comes in the form of a financial or monetary incentive. That's the carrot here. And so the values, so here's the thing. The, the psychology here, once I've unpacked it, I mean, I won't, I won't do it in this call with you, but we'll, we'll, have a, we'll have some time to talk offline. But there's a psychology from the centralized areas of decision-making today. And it's not going to remain the same. It's, it's going to transition. I already know. And you know how the transition is happening. But the folks that created the complications that we're dealing with with the rainforest aren't necessarily or rather not necessarily, aren't the indigenous folks from the rainforest. They've coexisted in the rainforest for perhaps centuries or millennia, and they're okay. You know, they can live in harmony. They understand the balance. They understand the respect. They understand uh, how uh, the ecosystem works sustainably. However, if you have a an external, mm, let's call it in the context of an ecosystem, an external predator who doesn't know respect or care for the balance of the ecosystem. And that predator's intention is just to take, to take, to take, to take. It's gonna be very difficult for us to convince said predator that what they're doing is wrong, especially if their DNA is designed to take, 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 because they don't have that understanding of community the way that we do ecosystems, the way that we do, because maybe the psychology is born from decision makers who are used to working in abundance. Rainforests are abundant with life. And so when you see a predator come along who hasn't eaten or is not used to abundance, they're going to try because of their DNA and take as much as they can. And that psychology there we'll unpack at another time, but this is what is going on, I think, 
is that um, I have several responses. So yeah. I, I won't because there's too many responses on that. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's 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 a lot of different things. One is that we, you know, it's a lot of a lot of it is what's how we've um, where we've ended up, even in just the last hundred years, not hundred, actually, I would say less. Um, if we had, and I was thinking about this, if we had the way of thinking as a nation in the US, as we did right around the time of World War II, where, um, you know, what was important? What did we think about? Uh, what was important? How did we think about um, life? How did we think about, um, uh, the, the way people thought about what it meant to be an American, to how to sacrifice, why you sacrifice, what purpose, to what end, um, those ideals, it's not that we're not capable, we are capable. I mean, this is a very generous country. Um, most countries, most people. So think about when you visit any country. I find nothing but generous people. I bond, I, I go native any place I go and I've traveled the world, right? I, I get mistaken all the time. By the time most places, and I don't look like most places, I get asked for directions in most places. Like I am one of the locals and guess what? I give directions. Oh, because I, I don't know it in the days of the maps I used to know mm. it. I've literally given directions in languages that I didn't know and That's I knew so... people did not know that I didn't know because I had like five words right sure. um, but think about who we are what our humanity at, you know at our core is and I think that we can go back to that now it's very idealistic but it is and it isn't so one of the things you've learned from Airbnb, right, is like now you can go and do Airbnb around the world. Mm -hmm. It's completely changed how you can travel, right? And I did it, by the way, in Spain, because where I was calling from here and like arranging somebody's apartment and I wanted to do the, you know, house swapping and I'd gotten somebody had a house in Paris and they were going to get our house and it didn't work. But I was doing these calls and I had this idea right before Airbnb came into existence. But you go, how do people treat you? It's amazing. It doesn't matter whether it's the cheapest place or really expensive place. There's an interaction that happens. I've become friends with so many of these folks. It's supposed to be, you know, and they do all sorts of things that are not part of any expectation. How do I bond? How, you know, why? Because we find something common in our humanity, right? And so one of the things that I find really interesting about what I do is that I get to be in the middle of the jungle and bond with somebody at a very human level by sitting on the floor of their hut. Two days later, I can be in a city and I can be talking to a minister or you know, a corporate multinational CEO and I can talk at that very human level. Why? Because you bond at the human level, right? What if we did more of that, mm -hmm. right? And if we did that and if we stop seeing indigenous people as being 
I don't know, like wanting to see them paraded because they have fancy clothes or they have markings or whatever. And as the human beings that they are, with incredible knowledge that most of us will never be able to get. I mean, I could live in the forest for the rest of my life and I will not understand or get the knowledge that's innate to most of the community members in most of the communities that we work with. Young person picks up on knowledge, even though things have changed, they're sort of, you know, now straddling the sort of Western civilization and the indigenous life in many places. And yet they have knowledge that we cannot even touch or begin to understand. It's all integrated. If we respected who they were and the knowledge they had, we would turn to them for some solutions. By the way, that's something that we wanna try and do, but because indigenous people hold between 70 and 80% of the biodiversity, because biodiversity loss is a huge, you know, it's the second existential crisis that the UN talks to us about, right? That says that we, we have fewer than 10 years to solve both climate and biodiversity loss. And, and so um, the thing I'm trying to say is that we have these ways, but something happened really in the last 15 years, 20 years, but it's not a path of no return. You know, um, I'm really encouraged by the uh, disease your son's uh, age, my younger son's age. I mean, oh my God, the Z's that we work with in uh, partnership, the Generation Z, the way they think, they're just amazing. Mm -hmm. And how they think. I mean, some of them are saving for retirement now. Now that's optimism. (laughs) Because remember, they see a dystopian world, right? They think that, there's not much left. And about 8% of them are saving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Think about the optimism in that. And so if they're saving money, how can you bring them along to focus on saving our planet? And by the way, when you say saving our planet, when planet doesn't need saving, right? It's going to exist for another 4 billion years. But sure. in, in the state yeah. with this, you know, this, this almost stable state it's been in. Um, and so, you know, there are so many planetary boundaries we're hitting. Do you think that that's it. probably why some of the psychology around global leaders are maybe muted around the planet and doing work with the rainforest because they think somewhere in their subconscious, they're, they're of their mindset, the planet's going to be okay. It's going to be here when I'm gone. So I don't have to do anything about it now. Do you think that's playing a part somewhere so in the psychology? Yeah. I am convinced that for some of them, they they think that if you know it's it's overblown, it's like they don't need to pay attention, it's gonna settle, uh, we're gonna find technology to solve it. You know, there's all this wishful thinking, right? But think about the personality you need for um, to be a head of state. You have to have a massive ego. And even the most humble among them, they have to have some sort of an ego. It's just something we have to accept. It's not a bad thing. And and so how many 
of their decisions are going to be um, affected by, you know, how they're perceived, short-term uh, returns, short-term um, uh, reactions and uh, expectations for what they need to do, including how they're perceived. How many of them are going to be willing to really take the long view? You know, how many corporate CEOs when somebody should have stopped it way before when somebody started shifting how we were measuring um, the health of a corporation, how, you know, uh, when we switched, how we valued um, um, how the whole shareholder value, how all that switched around from where it used to be to where it is now to where some people are trying to take it. Um, who decided? Who gamed it? Nobody stopped it. And how do we bring about systemic change? Who's going to take a step back? And we need a few people to take a step back and say, the way, what does the economy, the global economy of 2022 look like? It's got to be human. It's got to be fair. It's going to, it's got to include gender equity. Like, how can we be this modern in 2022 where we completely, almost completely disregard the role of 50% of human beings on this planet? Actually, I think slightly more than 50% probably. But, you know, think about it. For majority of the world, we haven't taken the 50% into account. Not enough, right? How do we take the voices of the young whose future we are deciding now and we are creating a future that they have no voice in? And so, you know, how do we, who steps back and says, says this system needs, that needs some sort of the next evolution Who's going to step forward? And you know, I mean, I'm always looking and saying, you know, before any cop, I always think, okay, who's going to rise to play the role that we need them to, to get us to the agreements we need at that particular cop? Then I think about what's happening in the EU, who's the leader, you know, whether, you know, I always have expectations of, it doesn't have to be an American, uh, a US president. It can be a, Leaders can come from anywhere. And the right kind of leaders, when they take those positions, you know what happens. People will join them because chances are, if it's the right thing and the right path, there's a whole bunch of them that have been thinking about it. They just either haven't taken a step back and thought about it or have had the time or the ability, right? So who is it gonna be, right? I mean, I always have hopes, I'm not naming names um, because you're recording this, I think so. Yeah, uh, still. We won't name names on this one. <laughs> exactly, but you know, I mean, it, it is, it's like, okay. So, um, you know, um, Angela Merkel, when she leaves, you know, I thought, okay, who's gonna, you know, fill that void? Uh, uh, 
that was a, uh, even as she got weakened, we still needed that. And there are people who think, okay, 16 years was too long, but who was, who was waiting to take that role? And by the way, they don't have to come from the, uh, from the Western world either, right? And so, I, you know, for me, my hope is who's gonna start stepping forward? Can I share something that's going to make you just uh, react? You know, we talk about money. We talk about who's going to step forward, who's going to do what. Do you remember back in April 2019 when that church in Europe, uh, Notre Dame, uh, the cathedral in Paris uh, was, uh, was on fire? Right, yeah. Ordinary people and, of course, uh, billionaires and I'm sure governments around the world uh, pledged at least... Uh, 650 million pounds, approximately 835 million dollars in 10 days. Days, yeah. 10 to days. To save this one symbol. I mean, okay. it's, it's beautiful, right? Um, I mean, I was. So, yeah. so, aside from the history, and you know, I've had conversation with the colleagues of mine who had their opinions about the church. And uh, so I said, you know, my response was, I appreciate the historical significance of this church to maybe the people who live there, maybe the people of Europe, important. Uh, but there are other churches in Europe, are there not? And I said to this one person, I said, is there only one other church in Europe besides this one? Or are there thousands? And I said to him, $835 million to be raised to save a church. That's the first part of it. And then I was curious about who gave the money. Because those certain people who gave the money evidently have the money and so if they have the money and it's just a matter of the cause to support where are their priorities aligned and those are the things i pay attention to i like i said i pay attention to people's actions not their words so i i found that fascinating i bring it up because even even some you know Hollywood movie stars are like you guys raised eight hundred million dollars in ten days to save a church when there are people starving in different places of L.A. and New York. There are people who are homeless in the U.S. It, it, it it's curious, is what I would say. But it's uh, we like I think about this all the time. How we spend money. This is the thing. We do not lack money. We oh, do yeah. not lack we solutions. Indeed. We, we don't lack solutions. We don't lack money. We, we don't, in some ways, don't even lack the will. But we don't have the right kind of leadership or the right kind of systems wow. to actually go do what we must. And, um, and you know, there are some who will, um, I mean, it's, it's by design, right? The way our world is set up. Uh, um, you know, how did we evolve as a species to get to where we are in 2022, to be so smart, to be so capable, to have done so many different things that, you know, uh, was probably unthinkable even, you know, 50 years ago or 40 years ago, and be in a place that we cannot solve something very simple. And, um, <laughs> The issues are how we think about, so the work I do, the work that most of us in my space do. I'd invite you to talk to any of your friends in your space. Mm. 
and and go ask them how they think about our work. Mm. They'll call it charity. They will call it non you know nonprofit work. It's like oh, it's so nice. We get thanked. But here's the fundamental issue. Most people have no understanding for why what we do is essential planet-saving work that nobody else can do. Academia cannot do it. Governments cannot do it. Corporations can't. The communities themselves can't. And the issue is that we were... Um, even the idea of a nonprofit or charity, nonprofit is the legal structure. That's just what it is. I've actually started talking to people. It's like, we need a different name. But here's the thing. It's not the structure. It's not who we are as organizations uh, in terms of um, um, uh, how we operate. It's who is running and working and focusing and who does it attract? Now, I'm not going to talk about the very large organizations because when they get to be that large, there's not a lot of difference between them and um, governmental mm -hmm. entities. I mean, they're bureaucratic and, and you know, if any of my friends get upset, fine, you can come and, and tell me otherwise because it isn't so. So I can give you tons of example, you know, 100 million there, you'd be lucky if you get 10 or 20% worth spent and your mm -hmm. returns on that 10 or 20% spent directly are not going to be very high. Um, mm. Spend it on the organizations like uh, ours and there's a bunch of us and we are the majority and you get outsized results. Why? Because of how we bring our passion our expertise, our ability. And here's the thing, most people could not survive in our spaces for many days, mm -hmm. even a day or two, because you just won't. And I've worked in all sorts of different areas. Uh, uh, and, you know, it is, but why do we do it? There's a reason we do it. And, you know, that's got to change as well. Um, that we are not just this sort of the sector that's just going to go. It's like, oh, nice you do this. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for the work you do. Sure. No, I get that all the time. Sure, I'm not sure you do. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but I think it's just, I think it's just a polite thing to say without really them understanding the impact you're having, right? I mean, if they because were they don't understand, aware. it's not on them, right? Yeah, it's not yeah. their fault because we've created a system where people's understanding for the role of nonprofits is this nice thing, it's charity. Look at the words we use, nonprofit. You know, we're not competent. We're, we don't know what we're doing. I mean, the kinds of questions I get asked by people. So I'm almost at a point of, you know, when you get old enough, yeah. It's like, hey, we've lost, in my lifetime, yeah. My lifetime, so I'm 57 years old, right? Mm. My lifetime, we've lost half the rainforest on our planet. My wow. lifetime. Oh my gosh. Okay. So maybe I, I may have earned the right to go to, you know, go tell somebody. It's like, um, you think you're an expert because you've made money 
or you've run this company mm-hmm. and you know how to do this, but that false equivalency of your knowledge and expertise to what I do and my being polite, and all of us do this, by the way, we were talking about it with mm-hmm. other uh, CEOs and executive directors. Mm-hmm. And I think it's almost time because guess what? The longer we stay polite, the more harm we're doing. And when do we start speaking up? And not in a, not in a disrespectful way because they, they're, they're, it's, it's because they don't know better because they've come to believe certain things to be true that aren't true. So how do we start shifting? It's on us, right? It's not on them, it's on us. We've got to do it. And if we wanna to get to where we want to for our planet by 2030, we better take that on too. I know it's like, okay, I said to somebody I was talking to today and you know he's had a lot of powerful positions and I said, we need to do all this. And I said, it's gonna be work. And he said, yeah, it's a lot of work. You know, are we gonna succeed? I don't know. But do we have an option to not try? And, you know, I don't think so. And so we've got to think way big. We have to think way differently. We have to think about, you know, how do we start sifting? And so I, there was somebody I was talking to yesterday and I said, like, okay, get the biggest sieve. Mm-hmm. And most of these people who say they care about impact, most of them will fall through. Mm-hmm. go to the smaller sieve and the smaller and smaller and let's get to the most refined sieve mm-hmm. and find those who really are serious who want to walk with us and say what do we what systemic changes do we need how do we create these pathways for all this funding to get down there how do we create systems for all this work impactful work that has to happen like yesterday or 20 years ago to get funded how do we measure that impact that's real Hmm. not nonsense like numbers of acres saved like really how do we get the funding down to the roots like we talked about you know that's a wonderful way to inspire as we conclude this conversation i'd love to have you back on lead with purpose at um, another time where we can talk about some of the progress that's been happening some of the impact you're having I'd like to leave this message with those that are listening that uh, if we don't take a stand for the trees in the forest, we fall. And I think that's a very powerful way to inspire people to do something about it. And in, in inspiring, I know you're a passionate speaker and you're on, on international platforms, but uh, you're also very relatable and accessible and you're human and, and I love sharing time with you. I'm also not only inspired by what the Rainforest Partnership is doing, but also by you, um, because what you're aiming to do is to protect the future of the world's rainforest. And we need everyone on board from governments at all levels to wealthy philanthropists, environmental activists, youth, corporations, and citizens around the world, because what you're doing with your team is building a global network of rainforest partners coming together to protect the future of our shared planet. And I thank you so very much for sharing that time with us on Pangea Talks as we lead with purpose. Thank you for joining us and you're welcome back at any time. Thank you so much, Declan. You're very welcome.